Now, the disciples' argument over greatness in God's kingdom was rooted in sin. We've established that over the last several messages in Matthew 18. Peter, James, John proudly boasted how they had seen the transfiguration. They boasted of their privileged position. And in their pride, they caused the other nine to stumble into the sins of jealousy, envy, and bitterness. The three also sinned by treating the other nine as worthless. Now Jesus responds to them with a sermon, the sermon about kingdom values. The sins displayed by the twelve demonstrated that they lacked essential values needed for every citizen of God's kingdom. And these are essential values that we today ourselves ought to embrace. Underlying each of these values is the truth that all of us as believers are God's children, each and every one of us. And as God's children, God equally values every one of us the same. And so to sin against a brother or sister in Christ, to cause a brother or sister in Christ to sin, is tantamount to sinning against Jesus or tempting Jesus. Now instead of pride, we are to value humility. Humility is foundational because with it no one Not one of us, without humility, will enter the kingdom of God. Instead of causing others to sin, we ought to guard against sin. Guarding against sin means that we remove anything from our lives that would result in sin, and we refrain from doing anything that would cause our brother or sister to sin. And instead of ignoring the sinning brother, we ought to pursue them, we ought to rescue them, we ought to restore them, to fellowship with God and with one another. Now this rescue and restoration ministry was summed up in one word, and that word is discipline. Discipline. Now some of you might still be viewing discipline and struggling with it. Man, Pastor, I just think it's unloving. Listen to what Paul said in Hebrews 12, 6. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. He disciplines. And Yahweh also tells us in His law, specifically Leviticus 19.17, that if you fail to confront or correct your brother or sister who is in sin, you are in essence hating them. So the most loving thing we can do when a brother or sister sins is go after them, confront them, and correct them. Now the discipline plan involves a private confrontation and correction of the straying brother. Again, we don't walk into the church service, Hey, you! I got a problem with you! Okay? That's not how you go about doing this. Uh, It's private. It's personal. Uh, You know, call them on the phone, take them out for coffee. Uh, You know, but don't, don't do it in front of everybody else, okay? It's nobody else's business. Listen, if they repent, they're to be restored and to fellowship and to service. And I believe in the majority of the times, after going through the first process... Uh, many, if not all, will repent. But there are those occasions where that will not happen. And so Jesus says, if the sinning believer refuses to repent, then take two or three eyewitnesses with you. Now these eyewitnesses are brought in to offer correction. In the case of having no eyewitnesses, then take two or three spiritually mature believers with you who can help uh, and stand in place to mediate the situation. Now, if God's wandering child repents at that point, 
they can be restored to fellowship and service. Now, if, they, if the wandering child still refuses to repent, then the issue is brought before the congregation. The hope is that the congregation's prayers and pleas would urge the sinning believer to repent. If they repent, restoration to fellowship and service can begin. Sadly, though, there's going to be some that still refuse to repent. And at that point, they're cut off from worship, fellowship, prayer, and time, and communion until they repent. So it's possible, you know, here's an individual who's gone to four different sins, four different times they've been confronted, and still refusing to repent. So having established what happens when someone refuses to repent, what is our responsibility as believers when someone does repent? What are we to do? Well, we know that when a believer repents of their sins, they are to be what? Forgiven. Forgiven. And so Jesus sets forth the fifth kingdom value, the value of forgiveness in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Now, directly responding to Peter's question and using a parable, Jesus is teaching us that forgiveness is unlimited. Forgiveness is an act of mercy and grace. And failure to forgive is immoral and will be punished. I'll say it again. Forgiveness is unlimited. Forgiveness is an act of mercy and grace. And unforgiveness is immoral and will be punished. Let's begin with verses 21 to 22. Jesus sets forth in verses 21 and 22 of Matthew 18 that forgiveness is limitless. It's unlimited. Verse 21, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Now notice again, during, this, this is taking place during Jesus' sermon. Peter interrupts Jesus in the middle of his sermon with a question. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Now before we examine Peter's question and Jesus' response, let us consider what it means to forgive. Let's talk about forgiveness for a moment. The word forgive here, athemi, means pardoning someone for a wrong committed, releasing them from blame, and ceasing from taking offense. Theologically, there are two types of forgiveness in the Bible. There is, first, forensic forgiveness, and secondly, familial forgiveness. Forensic and familial. Now, forensic forgiveness is a judicial pardon whereby a person is legally acquitted of guilt and released from punishment. Okay? They committed the sin, but they're pardoned, acquitted of guilt, and released from punishment. Paul pronounces in Colossians 1 and verse 14, In Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, God pardoned us as sinners, and God released us from the penalty of sin, i.e. the lake of fire. Now, forensic forgiveness is permanent. It cannot be undone. Your judicial standing before God does not change. Thereby, 
Or therefore, forensic forgiveness is a one-time action. Okay? Once forgiven, always forgiven. Okay? But there's also familial forgiveness. Familial forgiveness is a pardon whereby family relations or fellowship is restored. So forensic is judicial, familial is relational. When a believer, when you and I sin against God, our Heavenly Father, or we sin against our brother or sister in Christ, the relationship between that other person and ourselves is what? It's broken. And so if I sin against God, my relationship, my fellowship with God is broken. I'm not, I'm not unsaved, I'm still saved, I'm still judicially forgiven, but the, the relationship is damaged. If I sin against a, a family member, they don't cease being a family member, but the relationship is what? It's broken, it's hurt, it's destroyed. They can only be fixed with a pardon. And so it can only be restored, the pardon can only be offered when an individual repents. Okay? So you've sinned against a family member, you've committed some kind of offense, they cannot pardon you, they cannot forgive you until you confess it, okay? Until you repent. Because of the relationship issue, familial forgiveness is temporary. What do I mean? The forgiveness only lasts until the next sin occurs, okay? It only lasts until the next sin sin occurs. That's why we have in 1 John 1, 9, familial forgiveness. Okay? 1 John 1, 9 is not forensic forgiveness. It has nothing to do with salvation. It has to do with relation, with familial. If we, believers, confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, believers' sins, and to cleanse believers from all unrighteousness. Okay? Now again, let me stress, forensic, permanent, familial, temporary. But both are only dispensed in response to repentance. In terms of familial forgiveness, we must maintain a spirit of forgiveness. So even if someone sins against you, you must maintain a spirit of forgiveness so that you are ready to forgive when the person repents. This spirit of forgiveness is what Paul refers to in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and malice and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Now friend, if you are filled with bitterness, if you're filled with wrath, anger, clamor, slander, or malice towards someone who has wronged you, you do not have a spirit of forgiveness. Okay? If, it, if in your heart you're, you're holding on to this thing they've done and it's made you bitter, you're, you're, you're one of what we want, you want wrath or anger or clamor, slander, malice, you do not have a spirit of forgiveness. And for that, you need to confess it before God. What does a spirit of forgiveness look like? A spirit of forgiveness demonstrates kindness and tender-heartedness to everyone, including the individuals who sinned against you. Now, that doesn't mean the relationship's okay. It doesn't mean that restoration is necessary. But you still have to be kind. You still have to be tender-hearted. 
We're going to explore what that means. Solomon writes in Proverbs 25, 21 to 23, If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For in doing so, you'll heap burning coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, consider for a moment that it's possible that some believer who has sinned has not come to repentance because the person that they have sinned against, the person they have offended, did not harbor, did not demonstrate a spirit of forgiveness. In other words, they didn't demonstrate kindness or tenderheartedness to them. Is it possible that someone has sinned against you and they've never come and confessed their sin to you because in your heart you're bitter or wrathful or angry or whatever, you go on with that list of sins. You've never displayed kindness or tenderheartedness. It's something we ought to consider. We ought to examine ourselves. Make sure that's not the case. Now Jesus sets forth himself as the ultimate standard of forgiveness. When he hung upon the cross, he did not nurse hatred. He didn't desire revenge against those who placed them there. Instead, he had a spirit of forgiveness. He prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Luke 23, 34. That's a spirit of forgiveness. Now, those individuals couldn't be forgiven until they repented, but Jesus opened the door for their forgiveness by having a spirit of forgiveness. Now, you might think, well, that's an extreme example. You, so you might contend, well, he, it was easy for Jesus to forgive because he's divine. Well, let's look at some other biblical examples. We have Joseph, the son of Jacob, despised by his brothers. Eventually, they sold him into slavery, deceived their father, and had him believe Joseph was dead. Eventually, Joseph arrives in Egypt, and he's purchased by Potiphar. Then he's falsely accused of raping Potiphar's wife. He ends up in prison. Finally, after years, God intervenes. He makes Joseph Pharaoh's regent. And when famine sweeps through the Middle East, thanks to Joseph, Egypt had plenty of food in storage. Well, Joseph's brothers came to Egypt seeking to buy grain. When Joseph finally reveals himself to them, his brothers begged him for forgiveness. And listen to Joseph's words in Genesis 50, 20-21. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. Therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. They did him dirty. But when they repented of their sin, Joseph forgave them. Shimei, relative of Saul, King Saul, cursed David, threw stones at David. Later he came to David and pleaded for forgiveness. Now legally, he should have been put to death for stoning the king, for cursing the king. But David forgave him and showed him mercy, saying in 2 Samuel 19.23, You will not die. How about we come to the book of Acts and we meet Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Being stoned for sharing the gospel, shortly before dying, as stones are hailing down upon his head, he says, for it says in Acts 7.60, falling on his knees, Stephen cries with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Just like his Savior, he chose to pray for his tormentors to be forgiven instead of being bitter or seeking revenge. Now, let's be honest, folks. Forgiveness is not easy, and it is not natural. Okay? 
It is indeed divine. When a person is wronged, if you or I are wronged, what is our natural response? We want to be bitter. We want to hate the person who wronged us. We even want to seek some revenge. But that bitterness, hatred, and retaliation are not God's way. God has been wronged. And yet He has sent His Son to redeem us who have wronged Him. To offer us forgiveness when we repent of our sins. And so forgiveness does reflect God's character. And Christians, you and I, are expected to reflect God's character. If we fail to forgive someone who repents of sin, we are not reflecting God's character. Someone comes to you, listen, I'm really sorry for what I've done. I'm, I'm confessing, whatever, whatever words they're using. And you tell them, yeah, whatever. Guess what? You're not reflecting God's character. The Apostle John says in 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. We're righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every born child of God seated in this room, listening online, has experienced the Father's forgiveness. Now it's been said, you've heard it said, that those who have, forgiven, who have been forgiven much ought to forgive much. Indeed, God has forgiven believers every sin we have ever committed. No sin or wrong that someone commits against us can ever compare to the sin we've committed against God. And so if God can forgive us of the great sins we've committed against Him, then how can we not forgive those who have sinned against us when they repent? Furthermore, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14-15, If you forgive others for their transgressors, transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your heavenly Father will not forgive your transgressions. What, are we, what does that mean? It means this, God dispenses forgiveness to us when we sin to the degree that we dispensed forgiveness to others when they sinned and repented. God withholds forgiveness from us if we refuse to forgive another one of God's children when they repent. Remember Colossians 3.13, As the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Now let's return to Matthew 18.21. Consider Peter's questions. Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, Peter's question is raised in light of Jesus' admonition about disciplining believers. On four occasions, Jesus says, if a sinning saint repents, they are to be forgiven. Let's turn, let's turn over to Luke chapter 7. Keep your finger in Matthew 18, but we're going to go to Luke 17. And we're going to flip back and forth here for a little bit between the two texts. Because Luke 17, verse 3, is the corollary passage to Matthew 18. And it fills in some of the conversation that Matthew doesn't record. In Luke 17 and verse 3, Jesus says, in this context, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And what? If he repents, that's right, forgive him. Okay? So Peter wants to know, well, how many times can a person sin against a believer and be forgiven? And by the way, notice my brother. He's implying that he's talking about believers. So familiar forgiveness is in view here. Okay? 
When Jesus speaks of forgiveness here in Matthew 18, He's not speaking of forgiveness in terms of forensics or in ver- uh, forgiveness or in terms of salvation. He's talking about the restoration of fellowship between the members of God's family. Now also notice here, Lord, how many times shall I forgive him? Peter asked the question in the first person. But you know, I began to wonder, is it possible that Peter's question isn't being asked about others, but whether he himself can be forgiven by the other disciples? Remember, he had sinned against them. He had tempted them to sin. He had caused them to sin. So is it possible he's wondering if he can be forgiven? Regardless, the question is one with each and every one of us struggle with. When somebody sins against us, okay, they came and they repented, we forgave them. Great. Week later, month later, year later, they come back and do the same thing. And they repent again. At what point do I say, no more? How many times can they sin and be allowed to repent and restore to fellowship? If someone sins and repents of their sin again and again and again, how long can that pattern persist? Well, let me ask the question a different way. Does God's forgiveness of yours and my sin have a limit? Yeah. We just answered the question, didn't we? God's forgiveness of our sin is unlimited. Each and every time we sin and repent, God forgives us. And since that is the case, we ought to forgive others when they confess, when they repent, every time. Our forgiveness of another brother or sister in Christ is to be just as unlimited as is God's. God doesn't say, listen, you reached your quota. Okay, no more for you. No, no, no more forgiveness for you. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just each and every time. And so we should be the same with others. Peter suggests that perhaps forgiveness should be limited to seven times. Now, to understand that, let's get into the culture. The rabbis taught that forgiveness was limited to three offenses. Okay? Somebody sins against you three times, that's it. Fourth time, they're done. They get that idea from Amos chapter 1 and verse 3. In Amos 1 and verse 3, Yahweh declares, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Okay? The exact phrase is repeated four more times, about or three more times, about Tyre, Edom, and Ammon. Now, in the context, God's revealing, I would have forgiven these enemy countries for their sins, for three of their sins. However, the fourth sin that they have committed has now put these people beyond my mercy. So the rabbis took that verse, or verses, And they said, okay, well, forgiveness is now limited to three offenses. So if you've sinned against somebody three times, that's it. You're done. No more forgiveness for you. So understanding the teaching of the rabbinic teaching here, it helps us to understand why Jesus declared in his teaching on discipline that a sinning believer could be be forgiven, not first, not second, not third, but even on the fourth time, he could be forgiven. Peter and the disciples 
had been living according to rabbinical teaching on forgiveness. And so when Jesus says, even after the fourth offense, they can still be forgiven, well, now they want to know, well, when do I stop forgiving them? If, if three is not the cutoff, where is it? Perhaps it's seven. Now, Peter understands Jesus is obviously being more gracious than the rabbis. But where does this stop? It has to stop, doesn't it? Now, why did he choose the number seven? Well, in Scripture, number seven is the number of perfection. And perhaps he chose seven as a perfect amount of time to forgive. Or perhaps he was acknowledging that he had already sinned against his fellow believers more than three times, maybe five or six times. So maybe he's trying to make some wiggle room for himself. Well, Jesus responds to Peter's question saying, I do not say to you up to seven times, but, now here it comes, 70 times 7. 70 times 7 is not a multiplication problem, by the way. In Genesis 4.24, Lamach boasts if Cain can be avenged sevenfold, then Lamach seventyfold. Now, I want, to, I want to explain something here. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he is quoting from the Greek Septuagint translation. And the Septuagint renders Genesis 4.24 this way. Because vengeance has been exacted seven times on Cain's behalf, on Lamach's it shall be seventy times seven. Now, Jesus is making the exact quote there, seventy times seven, that's used in Genesis 4.24. It does not mean 490 times. It does not imply that we ought to be keeping a record of how many times I can uh, sin and repent before I'm cut off. It's a Semitic device to refer to a limitless or indefinite number. So in Genesis 4, 70 times 7 implies that Lamech will avenge himself an unlimited amount of times. And so what Jesus does here is reverse Lamech's principle of unlimited vengeance and replace it with unlimited forgiveness. T.W. Manson says this, Just as in those old days there was no limit of hatred and vengeance, so now amongst Christians there is to be no limit to mercy and forgiveness. So if forgiveness is limited, or limitless rather, why do we go through the process of discipline? Why not just forget it and move on? Well, in short, God only grants forgiveness on the basis of repentance. Therefore, the discipline process of confronting and correcting must be implored. So you say, well, pastor, how do I forgive? Well, forgiveness is a multi-stage plan or process. First, when a believer sins against you, you need to begin by resisting bitterness and any such spirit and instead adopt a spirit of forgiveness. Okay? So step one, adopt a spirit of forgiveness. Number two, With that spirit of forgiveness, you are now obligated to confront and correct them privately, lovingly, and gently. You know, I have people say to me, oh, pastor, you know, so-and-so sinned against me. Okay, question. Have you gone to them and confronted and corrected them? If you haven't confronted them and corrected them, you can't expect them to repent. Okay? And again, do that privately, lovingly, gently. Three. When or as soon as they confess or repent their sin, they're to be forgiven. Now again, you're still there in Luke 17, 3, right? If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Okay? 
There's no, there's no pause there. When he repents, forgive him. Regardless of how many times they sin, as long as they repent, they are to be forgiven. Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 4, notice verse 4, If he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times a day, saying, I repent, forgive him. Okay? So he sinned against you, he came to you and repented, he came back an hour later, sinned against you again and repented, and he did it seven more, or five more times, seven times in total. Guess what? So long as he repents, doesn't matter how many times he sins, as long as he repents, you're to forgive him. Now, that means unlimited forgiveness is not impossible, but let's agree it is difficult, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because our natural man, our natural tendency is not to want to forgive him. Okay? In Luke 17, verse 5, the apostle said to the Lord, Increase our faith. They admit, listen, this is difficult. You want unlimited forgiveness? We need an increase in faith. Jesus replies in Luke 17 and verse 6, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted into the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, Jesus is telling them, Listen, guys, you don't need more faith. It's not the quantity of faith that matters, it's the quality. Use your faith you have and obey God. If you believe God, obey what He says. In other words, it's not your lack of faith that's holding you back from forgiving others. It's your pride and self-importance. So only when we put, destroy our pride and self-importance will we believe and obey God and embrace limitless forgiveness. Let's go on to verse 23 to 27. Matthew 18, 23 to 27. Let's turn back there. Jesus sets forth here in verses 23 to 27 that forgiveness is mercy and grace in action. For this reason, verse 23, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay it, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayments to be made. So the slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. Notice what he says. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king. May be compared is that marker noting this is a parable. Okay? Homeoi'a'o, parable. For this reason, tells us this parable is an answer to Peter's question. And again, as most of Jesus' parables, they teach a specific truth about the kingdom of heaven. And this parable here, the parable of the unmerciful servant, illustrates this principle of the kingdom. Forgiveness is mercy and grace in action. Now, the parable introduces a king who wished to settle accounts with his slave. The word king here, Basilus, could be a ruler, a prince, a viceroy, a governor, or a satrap. For example, Herod, King Herod, was actually not a king. He was simply a governor appointed by Rome over the province of Judea. He just called himself king. Slaves, doulos in our text, refers to tax farmers. Tax farmers were individuals tasked with collecting taxes for the local governor. And it was a lucrative job because they could determine how much to charge. So long as they collected what the king or the governor or the ruler demanded, they could charge as much as they desired, they could pocket the rest of the monies. You're familiar with a tax farmer, his name is Zacchaeus, okay? the wee little man. Well, annually the king would settle his accounts with his tax farmers. 
And at the time, they turned over the monies collected which the king demanded. Well, as the annual accounting begins, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to the king. 10,000 talents. Now, that is equivalent by first century AD Roman world standards to 6,000 denarius. Now, one denarius is one day's wage. So you're talking about 6,000 days worth of money. Now, by today's standard, this guy owed $3 billion. That's a big sum, okay? Now, while it's a calculable number, the reason Jesus uses 10,000, miroi, is because it also can be used to depict an innumerable number, a myriad, okay? So Jesus is using it in an exaggerating sense here, or as hyperbole, to point out this man owes a debt he cannot pay. He owes a debt he cannot pay. By the way, according to Josephus, the annual tribute collected, or tax collected in Galilee from everybody for one year where it was worth 200 talents, okay? This guy owes more than the entire tax owed, okay? Three billion dollars, okay? Now, because the tax farmer did not have the means to repay, his Lord commands him to be sold, along with his wife and children, and all that he had, and repayment to be made. He embezzled money, he can't repay it, so... The king takes all of his possessions and sells the man, his wife, and his children into servitude. This is known as indentured servitude. Let's not confuse indentured servitude with abusive enslavement of people in the United States during the 1800s. This was a cultural means of filing for bankruptcy. Yahweh even allowed for it in the Torah. In Exodus 21, verses 2 to 6, Yahweh lays out the command... And basically, I'll sum it up this way. Under God's law, you could go into an indentured status if you couldn't pay a debt. But it was limited to six years of service. At the end of your term, you were set free with no payment due, along with your wife and children. But you could choose, if, if so be, you could choose to remain in servitude. That's indentured servitude. Okay. Now, hearing the king's judgment... The tax farmer fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him. Prostrated, proskuneo, means he made obeisance. He paid homage to the king. And by laying on the ground and doing obeisance or homage was an, act of, an outward act of, of contriteness or contrition. He's genuinely more remorseful. He's repentant. He pleads with the king, have patience with me and I'll repay everything. He confessed his sins. He pleads for mercy. He offers to pay. Seeing the man's contrition, the king felt compassion. I love this word, felt compassion. Splog kinizomai. Splog kinizomai. It means to be sympathetic or merciful. Now the Hebrew terms for compassion, racham and rakamim, refer to merciful, gracious, or forgiveness. Okay? So someone that has compassion is merciful, gracious, and forgiving. Now compassion is twofold. Inwardly, compassion means you have a feeling of mercy or tenderheartedness. Outwardly, compassion is demonstrated in grace or kindness. Now, this king's compassion typifies God's compassion for the repentant. So the king released him and forgave his debt. The word released, apaluo, means to set free. Forgive is our word, aphemi. He's pardoned him for the wrong. He releases him from the blame. Now, the word debt is interesting, danion, because it refers to a loan. 
You see, what the king did here was, and this is a demonstration of his mercy and grace, instead of viewing the money as embezzled or stolen, the king restructures it as a loan and forgives the tax farmer the loan and sets him and his family free from servitude and punishment. What a picture. Now, folks, mercy and grace are undeserved and unmerited. Mercy or tenderheartedness is choosing to show compassion and withholding punishment. Grace or kindness is choosing to pardon and forgive. Every citizen of God's kingdom is a servant of the king. And when a kingdom servant sins, fellowship with our king is broken and punishment must follow. But whenever the servant repents of their sin, guess what? Our king, God our king, mercifully withholds punishment from us and graciously forgives us. Just as it tells us in 1 John 1, 9. Now remember, as God forgives us of our sins when we repent, so are we to forgive others when they sin against us and repent. God forgives us on the basis of mercy and grace, and so too we are to be merciful and gracious to others who sin against us. As Paul says again in Ephesians 4.30, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Kindness is grace, tenderheartedness is mercy, and without the two, we cannot forgive others. And even when someone continues to sin and repents, we must continue to be merciful and gracious and forgiving. Let's remember what Paul says in Romans 15, 20, where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Forgiveness is unlimited, we're limitless, and forgiveness is an act of mercy and grace. Let's go to verses 28 to 35. Jesus sets forth here that unforgiveness is immoral and punishable. Notice that slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves, who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. And so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling. He went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now this parable, sadly, continues on a sour note. We have the contrastive, conju- yeah, contrastive conjunction, but death. Listen, there's a, this, this parable's going in a different direction, Okay? The slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. So the tax farmer, the one whose debt has been forgiven, finds his fellow tax farmer who owes him money and he wants to collect. Note the amount owed. One hundred denarii. Now it's not the same amount the other guy, the first guy owed, was it? By today's standards, that's about $5,000. Okay? He owed three billion. His debt's washed away, clean, gone. This guy owes him $5,000. He wants his money. He's here to collect. The first slave represents you and I, believer, who have been forgiven by God. 
We're the, we're the first slave. We're the tax guy. The fellow slave, though, represents our fellow believer who has sinned against us. Now, again, the disparity of money is significant because sins committed against God are greater than sins committed against one another. But notice their fellow slaves, their fellow taxmen, they both serve the same king. So because we're fellow believers, we serve the same king, we ought to strive to forgive one another. Finding his subordinate, he seizes him and begins to choke him and say, pay back what you owe. Do you see the difference, okay, between how the king handled him and how he's handling the other guy? He grabs him and begins to choke him. By the way, Roman records indicate that strangling a debtor until their nose bled was a common practice. So if somebody owed you money, you could go up and begin to choke them until their nose bled. Okay? What, what, what a group of people. Now, you say, that's unthinkable. Yes. Well, as unthinkable as choking someone over owed money, it should be just as unthinkable that we would be unwilling to forgive a repentant believer. Your unwillingness to forgive that brother or sister in Christ, guess what? You're choking them until their nose bleeds. Wow. Second, he demands he's paid what he's owed. Now, here's the key. Roman law says... If a king cancels the debt of one of his servants, the servant has to pay it forward and cancel the debt of any money owed to him. So by law, he should have wiped this guy's debt out. He received mercy and grace. He receives forgiveness, but he fails to display the same. And sadly, many believers, perhaps even some of you, who God has forgiven, are withholding forgiveness from your fellow believers. The fellow slave falls to the ground and begins to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. He says the same exact thing, the same words the first guy said to the king. He's, the second guy's now saying back to him. Both of them fell to the ground. Both of them begged for patience. Both offered to repay. They're both contrite. They both repented. But the first servant did not respond to the second servant the way the king had responded to him. So what does he do? With no mercy, no grace, with, with forgiveness withheld, he throws the second servant in prison until he can pay back what he's owed. Folks, his, his actions were not only unthinkable, they're irrational. Somebody explained to me how this man is going to pay back his debt while he's sitting in prison. But my friends, guess what? If you withhold forgiveness from a repentant believer, you're irrational as well. But you're also being sinful. So when his fellow slaves saw what happened, they were deeply grieved. That word, lupeo, they were offended, they were sorrowful. These are other believers. So other believers witness you withholding forgiveness from another believer who sinned but repentant. And you become offended and sorrowful. And so what did they do? They reported to the Lord, to the king, all that had happened. By the way, I think it's interesting that the king is now referred to as Lord. Okay? These believers begin, began praying to the Lord to chasten the unforgiving believer. Now, this parallels the third and fourth step of discipline. When you deal with a believer who refuses to repent, the witnesses and the church pray to the Lord. So they're praying to the, for the unforgiving, unforgiving believer means they already confronted him. They went to him, they confronted him, he refused to repent of his unforgiving spirit, and so now they go to God. And the king, the Lord, summons the tax farmer. 
and calls him, you wicked slave. By the way, that word wicked, paneros. Someone evil, immoral person. It's the same word used in 1 Corinthians 5.13 when Paul says that a believer who refuses to be, repent is to be treated as a paneros, as a wicked person, as someone who is immoral. So an unforgiving believer in God's sight is immoral. Man, folks, we ought to heed this warning. Beware of withholding forgiveness from the repentant. The king continues. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Again, you've been forgiven much, you ought to forgive much. If we receive mercy from God and then withhold that mercy from someone else, we are being immoral. So beware, believer, of withholding mercy. So the king is moved with anger. Orgizo, he's now seething. The king, God, is seething. He's brooding bitterness against this man. Why? Because God's holiness and justice demand that he seethe with anger against sin. Previously, he had been moved with compassion for this man who repented, but now, because the tax farmer has refused to forgive his compassion, the king's compassion, the king's mercy, grace, and forgiveness are turned into righteous indignation. And believer, let me say this. That you who have experienced God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, when you refuse to show the same to the sinning believer who repents, God's compassion for you will turn to righteous indignation. And you will not escape His punishment. The king arrests the tax farmer and hands him over to the torturers until he should repay all that is owed him. The word torturers, the banasistes, they're not executioner. He's not putting them to death. No, he's handing them to the inquisitors. An inquisitor is a prison guard who inflicts painful punishment. I want you to inflict painful punishment on this believer until he repays all that was owed him. By the way, he's not being tortured until he pays back the king. That's not what the text means. The king had wiped the debt from the book. And a forgiven debt cannot be placed back on the ledger. Ought we ought not all be praising God that our forgiven sins don't go back on the ledger. Amen? Amen? Instead, he should repay all that was owed him means that the man, the tax man, would be punished until he repaid what he owed the other servant. Now you're scratching your head. Well, I thought that guy owed him money. <laughs> the second servant pleaded for mercy. The first servant refused. That first servant, the tax farmer, will continue to be punished until he gives that man the mercy, the grace, the forgiveness he's owed. Applying it to us, Jesus says, My heavenly Father will do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. Friends, if we are unforgiving, we are immoral. We make ourselves the object of God's anger. And we will be punished until we forgive the one who has repented. Judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. James 2.13 God is going to punish us when we refuse to forgive. Not just because He's angry with us, but because He loves us. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He rescues. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. 
God will bring discipline in your life. It could be stress, it could be hardship, pressure, or some other difficulty if you're withholding forgiveness from another believer who's repenting. Now, as crucial as humility is for harmonious relationships amongst God's people, so is forgiveness. Just as, we need, just as it's sin not to pursue them, so it is sin not to forgive them. Let's maintain a spirit of forgiveness. Let's let go of the bitterness, the wrath, the anger, the clamor, the slander, the malice. Let's, be, let's, have that, let's embrace that spirit of forgiveness. Let's be merciful and gracious. Let's be ready to show kindness to all, even those who have sinned against us. Maintaining that spirit of forgiveness will equip us to forgive them when they come in repentance. Forgiveness pardons them from their guilt. Forgiveness, by the way, does not continue to hold that sin over their head. It is unlimited. It is merciful. It is gracious. Now you say, but pastor, what's my responsibility to a believer who sins against me but refuses to repent? What am I to do? You must follow the biblical plan for discipline. If somebody has sinned against you and will not repent, you need to confront and correct them. And if they still refuse to repent after sufficient time, then take two or three with you and confront and correct. And if they still refuse to repent, then take it to their church. And if they still refuse to listen and repent, then you got no choice but to treat them as treacherous, as a wicked person. Okay? They're toxic, if you will. Maintain a spirit of forgiveness, though. Treat them like a wicked person. Okay? you got to distance yourself from them. But have that spirit of forgiveness. Ready to forgive should they come to repent. But understand this. That relationship is broken. And the relationship cannot be restored until the offender repents. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Lord God, we come to you. We come to you in the name of Jesus who has pardoned us through his shed blood. You have pardoned us because of his blood. And so, Father, we come now according to his will and we petition you according to his character. We give you the praise, Father, that you have forgiven us. We, we can't thank you enough. But, Father, we must confess that we don't often do the same for others. We confess, Father, there are times when we've been sinned against and instead of being, having a spirit of forgiveness, we harbor bitterness and anger and wrath and other such behaviors. Forgive us, Father. May we confess and repent those things before you. Father God, I ask and pray, Lord, that should an erring brother come and repent, an erring sister come and repent, that, Father, we'd have that spirit of forgiveness and we'd forgive them. We'd be gracious and merciful to them as you have been to us. Father, I pray for that erring brother or sister that, Lord, you might move upon them. That, Father, as we have opportunity to confront and correct them, your spirit might move and bring them to repentance. And, Father, where repentance occurs, restoration begins. Father, I thank and praise you for giving us these values. That you have shown us what to do when we sin. You've shown us what to do when another one sins. And you've shown us what to do when they repent. Father, help us to do the same. Until your kingdom comes, Father, may we continue from now until then, to continue forgiving and great, being gracious and, and uh, merciful to those of our fellow believers who come to us in repentance. Father, we pray for those who refuse. And Lord, I ask that before your kingdom comes, they might come to their senses and they might come to us and repent. Father, may you get all our glory. May you receive all our praise today and forever. Amen.